as we often make note of certainly in the opportunities to gather together and assemble, it is by the great fortune and blessing of God that that's made available and possible to us. It is still the case, isn't it, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James chapter 1 verse 17. And this evening as we come to the Sunday evening service the 51st time this year, it is truly something that we can each look forward to each week that we can use to encourage and help us to be better servants of the great God of heaven throughout that coming week. This evening, certainly it would be very appropriate for, on behalf of my family and myself, to wish each one a very safe and appropriate holiday season. And hopefully the journeys and travels, if you have any in front of you, will be very safe and you'll be able to be back with us very soon. And certainly hopeful that all goes well with you and your gatherings and other things like that. This evening, as we consider a lesson, the text of which was read a few moments ago by Brother Lucas, drawn from the 31st chapter of Jeremiah in the heart of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Over the next few moments, I would ask you to consider some rather interesting and somewhat amazing things to be seen in that passage. As we contemplate, in fact, the nature of where the Old Testament stands, aren't we still aware of the need to properly consider it? For it still is the case from Romans 15, 4, that those things written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And hence, as we turn back the clock, if you will, and look at some of the things written so many centuries in the past, in fact, prior to the coming of our Savior to this earth, nonetheless, some of the things to be found therein are absolutely astounding. And in fact, I would suggest that among the great prophecies of the Old Testament, few would surpass this one in its greatness. Perhaps your mind has already raced to a few of the greatest of the Old Testament prophecies. No doubt the top of the heap would be Isaiah 53, in which we find the description of the suffering servant. That one, that prophecy, in fact, that the eunuch was reading in Acts the 8th chapter. And he, in fact, asked Philip, of whom does the author speak? Is it of himself or of one to come? Philip began at that point and preached to that man Jesus. It wasn't many miles it would seem down the road until that man desired to be baptized. However, as one looks at the greatness of that text and how that it describes the Messiah and some of the things that he would accomplish. In fact, it says in that very Isaiah 53, He was wounded for our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed. As we contemplate what Jesus thus accomplished at Calvary, that was all for you and for me. But I might quickly mention that perhaps second on the list of the greatness of that passage might well be the one in Jeremiah 31. As we heard Lucas read that a moment ago and listen to the greatness of that gospel ministration, the character of the church and all that would be involved in it, and the new covenant that was described so eloquently. It is tonight that I would ask all of us to give some thought for the next few moments to the greatness of that new covenant. And that led to the title of the lesson tonight, The Prophecies of the New Covenant. With the turning of the page from the Old Testament to the New, so many wonderful things made a change, of course, in terms of what was to come to pass. And tonight, let us look at a few of them as they were described long before they came to be in the heart of the prophecy in Jeremiah. With those things mentioned, let's revisit the opening verse, verse 31 of that passage. And let's notice one of the first things that God promised. 
Again, Jeremiah wrote around the year 620 B.C. So it was well over 600 years before Jesus ever was born. And yet, this is what God had to say. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. In the midst of this prophecy, we find very dramatically and rather pointedly stated in which God through Jeremiah said, The days are coming, verse 31, that I will make a new covenant. And immediately the bright day begins to dawn as we appreciate that spoken of here is the fact that there's coming a time from the days of Jeremiah when God would bring to bear upon the human family a new means by which He would carry on a relationship with them. And He especially says in verse 32, It will not be a covenant like the one I made with them when I brought them out of the land of Egypt we can immediately begin to appreciate that God here clearly promised the time coming from Jeremiah's day when a new covenant would be in existence. Immediately as one considers that that word covenant merely means agreement or compact, and it specifically here has relation to an agreement between God and man. It had to do then with a spiritual relationship in a whole host of ways. Hence, cannot one appreciate this was a significant prophecy. All throughout the course of human history, there have only been three covenants between God and man on a prolonged basis. And for this to be a prophecy of one coming to pass, it was a momentous prophecy. In fact, you might notice just a few of the features about how that God here described it. Those to whom Jeremiah was writing... Clearly were those, again, of the Jewish persuasion. They were individuals who shortly were to go into Babylonian captivity. Individuals who were well aware of the greatness of the prophecies to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew well about Moses and the covenant that was delivered by God through him at Mount Sinai. Perhaps we can gain some feeling then about how astounding to them this prophecy must have been. They looked upward to the law of Moses. They considered it the greatest thing, if you please. And yet here God is saying, I'm going to bring a new covenant to bear, but I'm telling you, it will not be like that covenant that I made with your fathers as they came out of Egypt. To them, that must have seemed an amazing thing to hear. As greatly as they looked upon that law of Moses, this new covenant, whatever it was going to be, was not going to be like it. Furthermore, can we not see that the covenant to which God referred, that one that was made when they came out of Egypt, if we turn back to Exodus 24-7, we see there a statement that reads like this. When Moses had descended from Mount Sinai and therein had in the possession the covenant, the law, if you please, that God was going to make with the people, as he read it to them, this is how they responded. The people said, All that the Lord hath said will we do. They thus appreciated and made a vow that they would keep fully and with great obedience all that God had stated to them. Thus they ratified that covenant on that occasion. 
Hence, we might notice the greatness of that covenant. With all that in mind, we must not allow it to slip from our minds that this covenant that was going to be new was going to be very different than that one. It was not going to be like it in a whole host of its particulars. I've asked you to consider just a few of the thoughts then near the bottom of that slide. Because after all, if it is the case here that God promised to bring a new covenant into existence, one that was different than the law of Moses, does that not in part and parcel affirm that the law of Moses was never intended to be permanent? It was never intended to be lasting until the end of the ages. God had designed it to last for a protracted period of time, and beyond that, it would be superseded by a greater and better covenant than it. That thus indicates today how wrong it would be to cling to the law of Moses as the law beneath which we should live today, if it is the case that that new law has come into existence. And in fact, as we shall soon discover... That law, that new covenant, the one unlike the law of Moses, not only has it come into existence, it has already been here now a long, long time. Perhaps in light of those matters, how inappropriate, how wrong it would thus be to cling to the law of Moses in any of its particulars and force them to be that which we claim God should expect of us today. Those matters only prompt us to consider Hebrews 8 verse 13. Near the close, in fact, of that eighth chapter of the Hebrew letter, the Hebrew writer therein affirmed, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which old and decayeth waxeth away. Hence that old covenant is in fact that which had already passed away by the time the Hebrew writer was thus pinning that which he wrote. In light of those matters, let us look more carefully at what else we find in this prophecy. We've already discovered this new covenant would be unlike the law of Moses. Let us notice a bit further though, and at this point in the lesson, it would be entirely right to make mention of the following. You and I might wonder, how can we be sure that this text in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, is speaking about a covenant that has already now come into existence. How do we know that? Perhaps if you are of a tendency to make notes in your Bible, you might want to make a note in that Jeremiah passage in regard to the first thing on that slide. This passage in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, is quoted twice in the book of Hebrews. It's quoted twice, once in chapter 8, a second time in chapter 10, and both times it is identically affirmed to be fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hence, we know without question what the prophecy was to which Jeremiah referred, and we know what the new covenant was to which he referred. It was that marvelous gospel of the Son of God. Here we find the written practically seven centuries before its coming into existence, God writing about its existence before that event happened. In regard to that prophecy, let us now devote the remainder of our lesson tonight to look at some of the specifics that would distinguish this prophecy, or rather this law, this covenant, from the old law of Moses. In what ways would it be different? How would it be unlike the law of Moses? Let's revisit verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. 
But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. One of the first things that God says would distinguish this new law, this covenant, this gospel of Jesus Christ from that old law of Moses, according to verse 33, would be this. I will put my law, that new law, in their inward parts, and I will write it on their hearts. Immediately we see the first distinguishing characteristic between these two covenants. The old law of Moses apparently wasn't described in that fashion, whereas the new covenant, the law of Christ, of course, would be. What did he mean when he said that I will put my law in their inward parts? In what way was that old law of Moses not in their inward parts? In what way was it not written on their hearts? We have noted on a few occasions in our Wednesday night studies and the Sunday morning ones as well, some of the features and aspects of that law of Moses, how that it was a tabulated system of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. It had rather little recourse fully in the way it was written to the nature and the character of what was the affirmation of their hearts. As we have noted, they, for instance, could merely observe the fact that if they were not to physically take the life of another, they would not have committed murder and would thus not be guilty of violating that commandment, thou shalt not kill. But that law, by the way it was written, did not touch the feelings of their heart. Did they have hatred one toward another? Did they, in fact, hate someone else so much so that if the opportunity presented and that law wasn't there, they would take their life? In many ways, the Lord made reference to things and differences like that in Matthew chapter 5, didn't He? When He said, You've heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. In all of those statements, that perhaps brings us to look back at this passage. Where amongst the Ten Commandments and some of the other features were there statements that touched upon the feelings, the emotions, the earnestness and the desire of their hearts? I would submit to you that was the thing to which here the Lord was referring. This new gospel of Christ will emanate by virtue of motivation, by love from the hearts of those who love me. They will wish to keep the things of this covenant because they will appreciate what my son did for them at Calvary. And they will want to be my followers out of their respect for that and out of their love for me. It is no wonder then that that distinction was to be a great one. Under that law of Moses again, we appreciate that Paul later would reprimand those Jews because in many ways their heart was not in it. In Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, there Paul said, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Paul thus said, If all you are are Jews who, by virtue of rote memorization, manage to keep those laws, you have missed the vitality of the point. God wants those to serve Him who want to, who love Him, and who wish to appreciate the offer of His promises and the greatness of the provision of that relationship. Here we find that so many of the Jews had failed in that matter. Were not they rebuked in Matthew 23? Because they had overlooked the weightier matters of the law. Oh, they tithed and things like that. But where was judgment? 
Where was righteousness? Where were those things that were the higher matters in Matthew 23, 23 that the Lord said, you have overlooked? Thus, we notice this new law was not going to be like that. It wouldn't suffer that same limitation. In terms of that emphasis now, look at some of the ways in which it is stated to you and me. The New Testament is far different than that. Perhaps we can state it like this. In what way could one become a Jew? You were born one. When your daddy, in fact, circumcised you at the tender age of eight days old, you had no idea what was being done to you. You were born of perhaps those Hebrew parents, that father and mother, and when you entered the world, you were, in fact, blessed with all the rights and all the privileges of the Hebrew relationship with God. You were born into it. Where was the will in the baby to, in fact, serve out of love? Where was the will in terms of that young adult to serve in love? It may well not have been present at all. That would not be true in the New Testament. You and I can't become Christians by just being born of a Christian father and a Christian mother. There comes a time in life we have to decide it. It has to be because I want to serve the Lord that I obey the gospel, and the same is true for you. Notice we aren't merely born by physical birth into God's family. I've listed a text or two to help us appreciate the thoroughness of that thought. Can we not see in John 1, verses 12 and 13, where on that occasion the inspired writer affirmed that we are not born by flesh or by the will of man, but of God. And we notice later in the same set of ideas in Matthew 3, verses 7, 8, and 9, on that occasion, John the Baptist began to ring the same toll as he said, God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. As they paid all their attention to the fact, we are Abraham's children, we are Abraham's children, they had missed the point. Where is your heart? Are you following the commandments that God delivered through that old law because you love the Lord and appreciate those matters? Perhaps in summarizing this opening set of thoughts, the New Testament wouldn't be so. You and I must recognize we need to have His law written on our hearts. It needs to be in our inward parts. An outward show will not suffice. That would at best be hypocritical because we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. To quote what the Lord stated in Matthew 12, or Mark chapter 12, verse number 30. Perhaps in regard to those matters... What next would be distinguishing between the new law and the old covenant? Notice what else was stated for us in verse 33. The closing statement was this, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Isn't it fascinating that God, throughout all the elements of human history, has desired to have a relationship with, with those who are His people. God is not distant and aloof from them. He desires to be a fundamental aspect of all that they are and all that they ever hope to be. God wished and always has wished for that relationship with His creation, with you and me as the highest of His creation. Many passages could be listed. I selected only but a few. We could go back as far as Exodus 29.45, Leviticus 26.12, just a few in which God there says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
That was beneath the law of Moses. He wished to have a fundamentally deep relationship with them. Now we find a similar statement is being made with respect to a new covenant. He too was desirous of knowing those who are his own, loving them and having them to love him, of course, in return. And in regard to those matters, look at the ways in which things like that are presented to us in the New Testament. In Ephesians 2, verse number 10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You and I are His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of those good works, that we should bring the glory and the honor unto Him. Later we find in the book of Titus, so amazingly, in Titus 2, verse number 14, again, near the close of that second chapter, Paul, in writing to Titus, said, We are His possession. God owns you and me. We are a peculiar people, zealous unto good works. As we ask that question about ourselves and appreciate that fundamentally deep relationship that we're able to have with God, do we treasure that? After all, here it was asserted to be a fundamental part of that new covenant, that gospel of Jesus Christ. In closing that thought, though, we might say this. The utter closeness of the relationship that you and I enjoy with God was not able to be enjoyed in the same way in those days of the Old Testament. The law of Moses simply could not offer it, and for the reason that we shall see in just a moment. It would be entirely in order at that point to use that to prompt us to look at the next idea. We've looked at two distinguishing characteristics. What would be the third one? In verse number 34, it says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In the third place, that new covenant would involve knowledge. And it would be a rather distinct virtue and kind of knowledge than had been understood in the days of the Old Testament. Notice again the emphasis of verse 34. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor. How so, Lord? For they shall all know me. They shall all know me. Appreciate with me the emphasis on the word know. K-N-O-W. Under that new era that new dispensation, there would be a degree, a kind, a zenith of knowledge that was not existent under the days of the Old Testament. A kind, a kind of knowledge that you and I have that they never had. Oh, how blessed we really are to be those who live beneath the gospel ministration. The virtue of knowledge and the power behind it, what you and I are able to know, would it not be fair at this point to bring to mind one of the statements made by Peter in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 13? We're there, as Peter made notice, that that which you and I enjoy, the prophets and angels desired to look into. They knew the prophecies existed, but they longed to experience that of which they spoke. Friend, you and I now benefit by living in the day and time. We do have those benefits at hand. They never live to see what you and I now have. That should give us some degree of understanding about how truly, remarkably blessed we are. Certainly in light of those matters, that perhaps does bring us to question 
one rather amazing thing about this text. What did God mean? What did it mean when he had Jeremiah to write this statement? They shall teach no more every man his neighbor. That seems to run directly contrary to, for instance, the great commission that Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus said, go preach it to every creature. And through Jeremiah, God said in verse 34, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and his brother. What did the Lord mean by that statement? What is the emphasis behind it? And what is the affirmation being set forth? Might I submit to you, in many ways, it's a fairly fantastic thing. Perhaps it would be as follows. It all hinges on the closing part of verse 33 and the way that verse 34 begins. Verse 33 ended by saying, They shall be my people. God has in mind a description that begins to consider those who you and I would call saints, those who are His people. With that thought prompting us, verse 34 then says, They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother. And might we note the usage of the word brother. Here we find then the statement that those who are saints will not find it necessary to teach those who are his or her brothers, asserting the need to know the Lord, for they will already know the Lord. How can that be? Let's note how that distinguishes it from the Old Covenant. Under the law of Moses, there were the opportunity for those to proselyte, that is to convert over to Judaism. And the books like Exodus and Numbers even spoke about that occurring. But notice, that had to be such that those had to learn about God, learn about the prophecies and learn about the nature of that law of Moses so that they could subscribe to it and become Jews. Here we find under the Christian system, that wouldn't be the case. And here's the reason why. Any person, within the sound of my voice or otherwise, who is a Christian already has had to know the Lord. You cannot become a Christian without it. In fact, in the very elements in which one becomes a Christian, belief, repentance, confession and baptism, there already has to be a fundamental element and array of knowledge. It cannot be that a person can become a Christian and never have known the Lord. It simply cannot happen. And hence, this was a statement then in regard to the greatness of this new covenant, that it will be prompted by that knowledge and the fact of obedience is required of each one to become a part of it. As we noted before, you can't just be physically born into Christianity or it isn't accomplished by paying someone enough money so that you can wear the name Christian. It doesn't happen that way. Didn't Jesus in fact speak to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 in words like this? He said, except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Two verses later in explaining that more fully, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you be born of water and of the Spirit, ye cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Thus, the very matter of entrance into the kingdom demands the knowledge that would lead one to appreciate the rebirth by virtue of water and Spirit. And because of that fact, this prophecy here found in Jeremiah 31 has a powerful and distinguishing ring to what was possible and what took place beneath the law of Moses. Perhaps it would be entirely right 
to notice one of the last set of thoughts upon that particular slide. The universal character of the gospel prompts us to see how that the forgiveness of sins is now the great blessing underneath this covenant. That's what those under the law of Moses never were able to appreciate. For after all, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4. The offering of those sacrifices could never make the comers thereunto perfect. Hebrews 10 verse 1. And thus, as they offer the sacrifices, looking forward to the time when the perfect sacrifice would be made, they could only wish for and long for what you and I now have. That, of course, is a tremendous distinction between that old covenant and this one. God thus was saying, I'm going to put in place a new covenant. It will be far superior in many ways to the law of Moses. Is it any wonder in Hebrews 8, 6, it's said to be a better covenant, established on better promises? In fact, as you look near the close of that slide, you'll notice two very brief things that we can use to close the last part of our lesson. Daniel's prophecy, in fact, rings so closely to this one in many ways. In Daniel 9, verse 24, on that occasion, God led Daniel to specifically appreciate this. There's coming a time, Daniel, when there will be an end of sin, an end of transgression. Now, God through Daniel didn't mean to say there was coming a time that nobody's going to sin anymore. But what he meant was there's finally coming a time when there will be an appropriate and absolutely efficacious sacrifice to take away all guilt of sin if human beings will subscribe in obedience to it. That was coming. It had not existed in Daniel's day. It had not existed in Jeremiah's day. But it was going to come to pass in Jesus' day. And when he died at Calvary, he paid the price for your sins and for mine. In Galatians 6, verse 16, in the heart of the New Testament, we find the word Israel used in such a dramatic fashion. Have you ever thought about the fact that you and I are the Israel of God today? Just as God wrote through these prophets to the Israel of the Old Testament, those who were the children of God through the nature of Abraham, today you and I are the children of God through Abraham by faith. Galatians 3.29, and we find three chapters later, in chapter 6, verse 16 of that same book, you and I are called the Israel of God. So this evening, as we close this lesson and think about these prophecies of the new covenant, just ponder with me in brevity a few of the things that we have seen, how wonderful these prophecies have been. We've been reminded, haven't we, that this new covenant was going to be very different than the law of Moses. This new covenant has come into existence. The Hebrew writer quotes these Jeremiah 31 passages and says, These refer to the law of Christ. We now live beneath this new covenant. In that light, we've learned how wrong it would be to cling to that old covenant, that old law of Moses, and think that it's binding today. In addition to that, we've come to appreciate this new covenant in regard to the forgiveness of sins that it makes available, and the fact that the entrance requirements into the church demand our knowledge so that it's not thus necessary for us to assert and demand for fellow Christians that you need to know the Lord, for you already have had to know Him to become a Christian. But tonight, that does beg this question, are you a Christian? Have you thus exemplified that great knowledge that God wishes you to know? 
and have you applied it to your life? If you have, you know what a difference was wrought when you became a Christian, when you became a child of God. But if you haven't tonight, why do you procrastinate? Why do you delay? If you know that you are a sinner, and if you know that the Lord died for you, and if you know what the plan of salvation is, then you know enough to render obedience faithfully to that which God has brought forth to you. This evening, if we could assist you in that confession, in that baptism, following, of course, your belief in repentance, we'd be happy to assist. If you have become a Christian, but you no longer are faithful, maybe you have forgotten some of the great benefits of Christianity. You've lost sight of the reality of these prophecies and what they mean. If we could help you tonight by praying for forgiveness of public sin, of course, following your belief in repentance, we'd be happy to do that. If either of these things would be the need of your life, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?